Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. But today's topic um, really reflects my passion for the church. Um, what God has called us to. As I was thinking of our anniversary Sunday, last Sunday, and Kevin drawing reference to our vision at the back there, which is making Jesus known, seeing lives change, transforming our community, and then I think about our mission statement and, and our values and everything, and, and I was just thinking, you know, I think today's topic might fit all of that. And the topic is entitled, Becoming a Restorer, which is really, when you think about it, the, the, the reality uh, that every Christ follower should embrace because that's what it's actually going to take to make a kingdom impact in our community. And especially when you consider the post-Christian uh, society we now find ourselves in where many people trust neither Christians nor the church. So what I'd like you to do as we begin to look at this is turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 or on your smartphones, or whatever, turn to Luke set chapter 6. What we're going to do is we're going to read this passage, and, and then we're going to unpack it, but I'm going to, I'm going to do that in story form, and, and then we'll talk about what God might want to teach us through this. So let's uh, just follow along on the screen here, and, and we'll read this. On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they, in other words, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, it's in this story that, that we find this captivating story that was so captivating that both Matthew and Mark in their Gospels also include this story. But they actually include additional information that Luke doesn't. And I've included their references in a sermon outline that you'll find in the seats uh, where you are. And if, you, if you're the kind of person who likes to use that to follow along or likes to take notes, well, then you have that there for you. Anyway, here's what I want to do. Using all of those three passages, not just what we read from Luke, but using all of those three passages and considering the, the cultural and, and the religious nuances of the day, I, I, I want us to immerse ourselves in this story and I want us to imagine the sights and the sounds that might have occurred on that Sabbath day and then we're going to discover what God wants to teach us from this story. But like I said, to do this, um, I, I want to unpack this story in dramatic form. And so basically, what I want to do is I just want to transport you back in time, and, and I want you to imagine yourselves as one of the crowd in this synagogue. And with that in mind, here's the story. 
the atmosphere in the synagogue is electric. I mean, you can feel it. You can taste it. The building is packed to overflowing. The, the crowd crammed tightly together in anticipation because it's the Sabbath and Jesus, this remarkable man, is there teaching. And everyone is looking on, wanting to both hear and see what's going to happen next. Now, who's there? Well, I assume the curious are there. You know, just hoping for a good story to share with friends later. We, we know his followers and his most intimate friends are there hovering nearby. And, of course, his increasingly ever-present enemies are watching as well, made up in large part of the religious establishment of Jesus' day. But mingled throughout the crowd is another group who's always looking to get closer to Jesus. In fact, wherever Jesus travels, you can find them. And they are the ones whom others look down upon. They're the ones that are often called outcasts. They're sometimes referred to by those who think too highly of themselves. They think of the other people as sinners. And then in addition, there are the disadvantaged, the, the downtrodden, the exploited, the ill, the physically challenged. And, and you know what? When we encounter these folks in the Bible, they're almost always nameless. But whether named or not, they're quite simply drawn to this man, Jesus, like no other. This man of immense hope, a man of reconciliation and restoration, a man who engages the brokenness around him and he brings physical and emotional and spiritual healing like no one else they've ever encountered. And because of this, in the back of their minds... They're desperately clinging to the hope that this is the Messiah. So because of all these different people that I've just mentioned, who are gathered in the synagogue that day because Jesus is there, there is a sense of anticipation. But then there's also something else in the room. There's something dark and foreboding. There's a tension that's palpable. It's tangible. It, it is real. You see, a, a nameless man with an obvious deformity, a man with a shriveled and paralyzed hand is sitting near Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm guessing that he's hoping that the stories he has heard about this Jesus are true. But then there's the religious leaders in attendance that day. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And, and they're not there to see any restoration take place. And, and hence the tension. You see, 
They're looking for any reason to take Jesus down a peg, to discredit him in the eyes of the crowd. They're just looking for any excuse to accuse him of breaking their Sabbath laws. And so they're ready. They're, they're, they're watching, just hoping that they're able to pounce on Jesus. And, and the one question in the back of their minds is this. Will Jesus heal on the Sabbath when it's not really necessary? You see, according to their Sabbath laws, not, not God's, according to their Sabbath laws, it's all right to care for those in life-threatening situations on the Sabbath, but this is clearly not one of those times. The man's life is not threatened just because his hand is shriveled. Jesus, however, knows their hearts. He knows intimately what these self-righteous men are, are thinking. He knows their hypocrisy, their legalistic sense of right and wrong. And so looking at them, he forces the issue. And, and he says, and he says this in one of the other Gospels, let me ask you something. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will, will you not grab it and lift it out? And the implication there is, you know, that's not really a life-threatening situation for that animal, yet you wouldn't hesitate to help it on the Sabbath. And if that's the case, he goes on to say, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Now, at this point, Jesus' gaze deflects down to the man with the shriveled hand. And I don't know about you, but I, I see his eyes softening. I see a, a look of compassion clearly written on his face. And then loud enough for everyone in the building to hear, he says to the man, you know, get up. Stand in front of everyone. Now, I don't know about you, but when I put myself into this man with the shriveled hand, I put myself into his sandals, his shoes, I can see him glancing around tentatively, you know, just looking furtively um, from side to side. And then, then I see him slowly rising, obviously nervous about the tension in the air. I can see him taking a quick look over at the Pharisees who are scowling. And as a result, his feelings are really intense, alternating between this apprehension and this hope as he flicks from Pharisees to Jesus. Once again, Jesus looks over at the religious elite and he says, I ask you, what's the right thing to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? They're silent, probably seething inside, trapped by their own spiritual blindness, the hardness of their hearts. Because although they say they follow God, they don't even recognize when God is about to do something in their midst. And because of that, suddenly Jesus' face changes. 
And the gospel of Mark tells us that angered and deeply distressed at their stubbornness. So in other words, fed up with their useless and meaningless rules, with lifestyles that ignore the pain and the suffering of others at the expense of their religious practices, Jesus says to the disabled man, you know, stretch out your hand. And the man does as he is told, and as he does so, this miraculous transformation takes place. His hand is made whole, restored to what it ought to be, not what it is. Now, I want you to keep that phrase in the back of your mind because I'm going to come back to it later. Restored to what it ought to be, not what it is. Anyway, furious at what Jesus has done on the Sabbath, the Pharisees withdraw from the synagogue, just thrusting others aside as they do so. And then seeking out some Herodians. Those are supporters of King Herod. Gospel of Mark tells us that. And, And these are people whom the Pharisees generally are at odds with, except when it comes to Jesus. Anyway, they begin to plot how they might kill him crowd, however, well, I see them erupting in shouts of wonder because the restorer has struck again, bringing hope to the hopeless and restoration to the broken. And that is a scene that plays itself out again and again and again in Jesus' three-year ministry on this earth. Seen in his encounters with the woman at the well who had been married five times and now living with a sixth man a prostitute who was redeemed, a Roman centurion whose servant was ill, a tax collector, Zacchaeus, who because of Jesus turned his life completely around, the blind, the paralyzed, the leprous, the demon-possessed, even a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, whose heart is searching in spite of his colleagues and in spite of his colleagues and what they're saying about Jesus. All of them are drawn to this restorer, to the one who ultimately wants to restore their soul. And thus ends our story. The the, the question now is, what what do we need to do with that story? And, you know, with, with so many similar stories that are just played out for us in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, here's how I'd like to handle that. I I, want to take you back to, to a book that I read. It was a book entitled The Next Christians. And um, it's a book that I I immersed myself in. The author, Gabe Lyons, uh, actually was one of our special speakers at an Alliance Workers Retreat a few years ago. But anyway, in his book, Gabe, um, Gabe Lyons states that there were actually three types of religious people in Jesus' day among the Jewish people. There were the separatists, the culturers, And the restorer. And each group or each person dealt with their culture or their world in a different way. For instance, the the separatists, he says, uh, were largely represented by two groups. They were the Pharisees and the Essenes. Now, the Essenes were a group of people that were so disappointed with the society of their day that they had actually withdrawn into isolated communities. And they were totally distancing themselves from the culture they lived in. And they were just waiting for God's return and intervention. So they just basically checked out of the world. The the Pharisees, on the other hand, um, 
although not physically withdrawing from society like the Essenes have done, they were so concerned about their version of purity and holiness, not God's version, but their version, that they had developed their own kind of withdrawal. Because they had taken the law of Moses, God's law, and had put their own interpretation to that law. And then they had also developed an additional set of legalistic, pseudo-religious rules and ceremonial practices. And then as a result, had become judgmental of the world around them. And so because of that, they stuck to their own kind and tried to have as little to do with anyone who didn't think or act like they did. So that makes up the first group, um, first religious group in Jesus' day, the separatists. The, the second religious group of Jesus' day were, were the culturers. And, and there were two groups that largely made that up. They were the Sadducees and the Herodians. Now, rather than withdrawing from society, uh, apparently they tried to just blend into their culture. Or they went along with it, even accommodating it. According to Gabe, faith for them was just largely this private thing or a relic of their heritage. And so as a result, at times you really couldn't tell or see much of a difference between how they acted and how the society they lived in acted, which was a society dominated by Roman and Greek pagan influence. That was the second group. Now, Jesus, who represents the third group, was unlike either the separatists or the culturers. He was the restorer. And by that I mean he was the one who engaged a broken world intimately, up front, bringing solutions to the brokenness he encountered. Where, where others brought you know, judgment and self-righteousness, he brought reconciliation and restoration. And, and he did it in, in such a loving and compassionate yet uncompromising manner that people were just drawn to him. Even those thought to be the worst of sinners by others sought Jesus out because of the reconciliation and the restoration he brought and, and the loving manner in which he did it. Which means then that there were these huge differences between Jesus and the other two groups which is why there was so much tension. So, for instance, Gabe states that, that whereas the separatists of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they would have said, you know, I'll tell you what, Kevin, you go make yourself clean, and then you can come and eat with me. Whereas Jesus said, come and eat with me, and I'll make you clean. So that was a major difference between Jesus and the separatists. Now, in addition, Jesus also avoided compromising lifestyles um, or, or, or avoided the compromising lifestyles of the Sadducees and Herodians. He didn't try to blend in or accommodate the culture of his day like they did so that you couldn't tell if he was different than anybody else. And then he didn't allow that kind of blending in to exist in the temple either. Most of us know the story of Jesus at the temple. And Gabe says, and I quote, Jesus didn't give in to the political pressure of the day to use the church as a place for merchants to set up shop. Uh-uh. He charged into the temple. He flipped over their tables, reminding them that the house of God was not a place for entertainment and consumerism. Jesus lived, modeled, taught, and embodied a different way, a better way, end quote. 
Now, here's where the, the story gets, gets really personal for us, for Christians of today. Because, you see, I, I would suggest to you that our, our Christian community in Canada and, and in the U.S. Is, is no different than what Jesus encountered in his day. And, and Gabe, the author of this book, Next Christians, would concur. And he says that, that even today, you can find the same three types of people in the Christian church. The separatists, the culturers, and the restorers. For example, he says, the, the Christian separatists of today, if not careful, he said, they fall into the trap of spending the majority of their time with other Christians, purposely looking for what he calls safe places to live out their lives. Interacting with the people they live beside and work with as little as possible and engaging them only at a superficial level. And then if they do interact with their society, he says too often it's simply to criticize or to condemn or to judge. Protesting, against, you know, protesting about what they're against without bringing the love and the compassion of God and his solutions into the broken. And when they do get involved in outreach or evangelism and too often it's from afar with, with little or no desire for close and intimate friendships with those who don't know Jesus. And if we want to be blunt, quite simply, they just don't want to get involved with the messiness of others' lives. And then they wonder why others don't really want to hear about Jesus and the difference he can make in their lives, both in the here and now, and the future to come. So that's an example of today's separatist. Where it can lead if we become one of those kind of Christians. But what about the Christian culturers of today? Well, Gabe says that they blend in with the society to such an extent that you can't even tell whether they're Christians or not. They just live the lifestyle of everyone else around them and they conform to the society they live in. And as a result, how they, how they believe or how they behave and, and how they act often doesn't line up with what they say they believe. Oh, don't get me wrong, a number of cultures may get involved in important uh, social causes, attempting to help the world through that kind of thing, but their faith in Jesus is to a large extent either hidden uh, secondary or, or almost non-existent. Fortunately, though, Gabe says that there are Christians who have not succumbed to either of those extremes. And when you really look back on the 2,000 years of church history, they basically have made themselves known in each and every age. And, and those are the restorers. And, and when I think of the kind of church that we're trying to build here at the well, I would say that our vision describes the fact that that's whom we want to strive to be. A restorer. Now, according to Gabe, the restorers of today, whom he calls the next Christians, hence the title of his book, he says... They, they neither disengage from the society they live in nor work hard at blending in with it. They instead engage it. They look for what's broken in the world around them, physically, socially, morally, relationally, spiritually, and they try to bring God's healing touch into that situation intimately and up close. In other words, 
that they're willing to bring the tangible taste of the good God into a world whose spiritual taste buds have gone sour and bland. You see, restorers are willing to live in the world as salt. And what is salt? It's both a preservative and a taste enhancer of all that is good. They're willing to storm the darkness around them with the light of God through Christ, bringing truth and order into any deception and chaos that they encounter. Now, in describing this new generation of restorers further, here's what Gabe says about them. Apparently, instead of being offended by what they see and hear, instead of being critical and judgmental, instead of separating the secular from the spiritual, in other words, instead of just seeing their job as a means of employment, and instead of being distracted by the consumer-based society they live in, instead of giving in to the individualism of today, instead of being antagonistic to those with diverging viewpoints, instead of trying to blend into the culture they live in, instead of all of that, he says that the restorers he's encountered today are, are first and foremost provoked to engage the world they live in, to change it. He says that they want to transform the world by creating culture that affirms God's values of goodness and truth and beauty in the workplace, in the arts, in social settings, in the neighborhood. I mean, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, they believe God has called them to minister in their sphere of influence. So they don't have a job. They have a calling. And as such, they are grounded in their faith in Christ, learning how to uh, live life wisely as they engage their working colleagues and their neighbors and the, and the society they live in with the person of Christ, his life, his message, his hope that he brings, his restoration, his salvation. There are also some of them living in true community with um, other believers, even moving together into the same neighborhoods, bringing God's restoration through Christ into the world as a team. Our oldest son, Randy. And his wife, Susan, and their kids are doing that in inner city Hamilton. They felt called to inner city ministry. And they moved there along with other like-minded Christians to make a, dif to make a difference in, in, in the part of Hamilton that they're living in and working in. Now, in addition, these next Christians are also engaging people of differing viewpoints in a civil manner. And finally, they are looking to be counter cultural not separate from it not trying to blend into it but trying to change the culture one person at a time now when i thought of that description i thought this in other words they have really taken to heart the words of jesus when he said for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost i mean they have fully embraced christ's words when he said Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And finally, they have resonated with Jesus' calling when he said in a synagogue in Nazareth these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These next Christians, these restorers, whom we want to be, are trying to live out what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we are to live as God's ambassadors, His representatives, 
bringing his ministry and his message of reconciliation to a broken world. Paul states in that passage, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And what is that ministry of reconciliation? It goes on in the next words. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now, when you, when you look up the word ambassador in the World Book Dictionary, here's one of the definitions you'll find. An ambassador is someone who represents the qualities, the traits, or the habits of the person they are representing. That, that's the kind of restorer that God has called us to be. That's the kind of restorer he wants us to be. Starting each new day with this mindset that says, we're going to represent Jesus today. We're going to paint an accurate picture of Jesus today and his message through both what we say and what we do. Others have said, you know, we as Christians may have many jobs in life, but we only have one calling, and it involves the ministry and the message of reconciliation and restoration that comes through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that can only happen first as we walk with Him in relationship and allow His Holy Spirit to fill us, and then secondly, as we engage our society and our world, which means our working colleagues, our, our schoolmates, our neighbors, engage them intimately and up close and are willing to walk with them for the long haul. Like I said earlier, many people don't trust Christians and they don't trust the church. And the only way to change that is for us to love people and invest heavily in their lives on their turf, gaining their trust, so that we earn the right to share our story about Jesus. So quite simply, we're to be Christ's ambassadors by acting like and saying like Jesus would say. Now let me begin to tie this all together. How many of you ever, um, how many of you ever watched the movie Saving Mr. or um, yeah, Saving Mr. Banks? Anybody watch that movie? Oh, good movie, good movie. Walt Disney, in this movie, Walt Disney is, is speaking to the author of Mary Poppins, whose name is Pamela Travers, P.L. Travers. And he's trying to convince her to allow him to tell this story through film. She doesn't want to, and he's trying to convince her. Now, what I'm about to say isn't a direct quote from the film, but here's the gist of what Walt says as he kneels in front of her chair, all right? And here's what he says. He says, Pamela, we are storytellers, and a storyteller restores order to a world in flux. We bring hope. And if you think about that statement, isn't that what we as Christians are supposed to be? We are storytellers with the greatest true story ever told. A story of absolute hope, absolute reconciliation, absolute restoration with God and His creation found only in Jesus, God the Son. 
And that's a story that needs to be told both through our words and our actions. It's a both and, not an either or. Gabe Lyon says, and I quote, the bottom line is, is that the Christian has a calling and a responsibility to think, work, and live in terms of how the world ought to be in contrast to reacting to how it really is. Remember, I asked you to keep that thought in the back of your head that I was coming back to it? Well, I've just come back to it. Anyway, he goes on to say, Christians who engage the world are consumed by this way things ought to be mindset. He says they eat it, they drink it, and they breathe it. They breathe restoration. And he says as a result, they see injustice, they fight it. When confronted with evil, they turn it for good. They're motivated to bring the love of Christ into every broken system they encounter. He says their focus has moved from self to others, from problems to solutions, from failure to redemption, from brokenness to restoration. He says, quite simply, they are moved to change things, end quote. Which leads me to this final story, and then with this I close. D did you know that, that sometime in the second or third century A.D. or C.E., so seventeen to 1,800 years ago, during some of the worst persecutions suffered by Christians under the Roman Empire, an anonymous letter was written about Christians to a Roman scholar called Diognetus. And here's an excerpt of that letter. He says, and I quote, The Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They don't live in cities of their own. They don't use a peculiar form of speech. They don't follow an eccentric manner of life. In other words, they're not separatists. Yet although they live in Greek and barbarian cities alike and follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living, at the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own commonwealth. For instance, they marry like everyone else and they beget children like everyone else but they do not cast out their offspring. In other words, they don't kill their newborns like others do. They share their board, their meals with each other, but not their marriage bed like others do. So in other words, they're not culturist. Instead, he says, they busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. To put it simply, and if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. What the soul is in the body, that's what Christians are in the world. End quote. Friends, as I was thinking about that letter, I, I thought this. As, as we move forward as a family of God, as a body of Christ, as, as ambassadors of Christ, as restorers, I, I pray that those are the words that our friends and neighbors will use of us. I mean, may those be the words that the wider community says of us. You know what? What the soul is in the body, that's what the well is to us. And so may God bless us as we engage the society around us in all kinds of ways.
with the wondrous ministry and the message of reconciliation and restoration that God has called us to. Where God is reconciling the world to himself, restoring the world through Christ, one person at a time, and he's using you and me for that grand purpose. So, let's, uh, let's be a restorer. Not a separatist, not a cultural. Let's walk with God, let's allow him to fill, him, fill us with his spirit, and just engage our world as a restorer. Because this is what God has called us to both be and do. Let me pray and I'll call the worship team up. Father, I thank you so much for that story in Luke chapter 6. What it can mean to us. I thank you for using Gabe Lyons to write that book, Next Christians, which had such a profound effect on me. I thank you for that letter that someone wrote to Diognetus. You know, 17 to 1800 years ago, and we still have it today. And I pray that that letter will mean as much to the people of uh, Bimbrook today as it did for the people in the Roman and Greek Empire uh, back then. In Jesus' name, amen.